Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Come listen into the second part of my conversation with Joey Chait, a man who was raised in Scientology from birth and says that he experienced quite a bit of abuse and is starting to speak out about his experiences, and he wanted to share them on this podcast. Let's listen in now. So when you're talking about being in the Sea Org, it could be seven in the morning till midnight if you're lucky. And Mm -hmm. what else was the day like? For well, for me, um, I was I, I was an auditor, so I was part of the technical staff. The technical staff had a bit of an easier schedule because what was happening is that people would be, uh, the auditors would be taking their their patients into in, into the auditing sessions, and they were so tired that they were falling asleep. Mm. So imagine you as a therapist, and you're sitting there listening to your patient talk, and you just start to doze off. It's it's just it's 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 not it's not supposed to happen. So the technical staff had a little bit of an easier schedule as opposed to the administrative staff. So for my schedule, you wake up at 6.30 or 7 in the morning, you go grab breakfast if there is breakfast, which sometimes the, the because they have a galley, they, they uh, call it a mess hall or a chow hall. And uh, because everything is naval and pretend, you know, you're supposed to pretend like you're on a ship. Um, if you're lucky, you get breakfast and then uh, every couple of hours throughout the day, they have these things called muster, which is essentially just like a, a meeting or a roll call. You show up for the morning muster at whatever it was. It was 8 a.m. or 8.30 a.m. They do the roll call to make sure that everybody is still there and make sure that nobody actually escaped. And then they give you your orders of the day or current events of things that were happening in the Sea Org. It's a quick, quick, quick muster. And then, okay, good. You go to post. You go to your job. And for me, I was an auditor, so I would go take take take, take people in session until ten thirty or eleven o'clock at night. You get a thirty minute break for lunch, a thirty minute break for dinner. Uh, that's it for most of the day. And then at ten thirty or eleven o'clock at night, once you finish your auditing for the day, you do your administrative work for the day. So my job was to write up the sessions that I had for the day, and then you go to bed by midnight if you're lucky. Sometimes a little bit later. Um, the administrative staff had it much worse because they didn't really have to deal with the public Scientologists or the paying Scientology public. So depending on the day or depending on the situation, they could stay up all night and they'd have to wake up at six or seven in the morning and because you have to show up for muster. If you don't show up for muster, if you miss it or miss one of those meetings, they go searching for you and they go find you and then you get into really bad ethics trouble. And when you so get into really bad ethics trouble, what does that mean? That means that you go, so in Scientology, they have the ethics officers. This is the person or the team of people to make sure that you follow the rules of Scientology and to make sure you follow the rules of the Sea Org. So if you get into ethics trouble, you have to get put on a meter, on an, on an e-meter, and confess the crimes that you committed for whatever it was, or you're meant to write up all of your crimes. So you make a, make a list of all of the, all the bad things that you did. When did it, and again, specifics, when did it happen? Where did it happen? What was the situation when it happened? You have to write down every single minute detail and that all gets stored in your, in your ethics folders and in your auditing folders as well. So they can keep track of every bad thing that you've done. And then sometimes if you get in really bad trouble, you have to do manual labor. They sent me, when I got in trouble one time for making a mistake on, on, on some of my auditing, it was a minor mistake. But in their eyes, it was pretty major. They sent me to the kitchen to go scrub the giant pots, the the giant vats uh, uh, or, or the pots that they cook the food in for the entire Sea Org crew, which took me a couple of hours because they only gave me a toothbrush to do it. And it's this gigantic pot that has scum and burnt pieces of food all, all over it. And the floor was covered in old slimy food residue. It was horrible. But they do that to make you learn a lesson so that you won't ever make that mistake again. It's like, if you screw up, we're going to punish you. And this is what the punishment is going to be. Mm, okay. Which of and course is gonna... com- compared to some of the other punishments that they do. Oh, I hear a lot of from people who have left groups like this where they're uh, anxiety ridden. They're so worried about making a mistake. They're so worried that they have this sort of sense 
that someone's following them around with a clipboard, you know, like. God, yes, I still, I still get anxious when I go through security at airports or when I go to customs, like if I happen to leave the country, I get a little nervous about it because they're like, they're there, they're checking your passport and they're looking at you. And it's like, I feel like I'm back in the sea or mm. crazy. Right. And so moving this up to the time that you were able to get out, was there something that you were starting to notice where it just wasn't coming together anymore and you were kind of done? Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the transition like for you? The transition um, started when, so basically what happened in my, so I got kicked out of the Sea Org and then a whole series of events happened where I wanted to get back in good standing with the church because I wanted to continue up the bridge to total freedom. I wanted to continue doing the confidential level because I had gotten up to OT3. And at this time, it only goes up to level eight. So I got to level three. I wanted to continue doing it because I thought, okay, well, there must be more to it. And, you know, maybe something will happen. And they blocked me so hard for so many years because I was at finally decided that I was going to be openly gay. That, That in itself took years for me to get to that point. But I finally told them, I'm like, listen, I'm gay, so I'm going to do this thing. And they were like, okay, but you can't really do that. They would not let me continue up the higher levels if I was a practicing homosexual is what they called it. So they kept trying to put me through the ringer and tried to give me all these different uh, auditing processes and different types of auditing to try to cure the homosexuality. And I told them, I'm like, guys, this is not what I want. Just let me, just let me go up the bridge. That's all I want. I had it all paid for. I had it paid for for years. And because of their reaction to what I was trying to tell them, it sort of put a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth. And that's when I was like, okay, well, maybe there's something not right here. And then when you're in Scientology, you're taught to never go on the internet to look at anything negative about Scientology. You're taught, you're taught if you see something negative in a newspaper or a magazine article or on TV, you shut it off and just kind of push it to the side. You're not allowed to look at anything negative. So what I did is was I started looking online and it was very scary at first. So I would go online and I would watch a YouTube video of some ex-Scientologist talking about their own personal story. I'd watch maybe a minute or two of it and then I get scared and I would shut it off. I'd be like, nope, I'm not going to watch it. And then a day later, I would watch a couple more minutes of it and then shut it off. And then maybe a couple of weeks after, I would be able to finish the whole thing. And then two years of doing this, then I started reading everything on the internet about it. And I was like, oh my God, there's so much happening behind the scenes and so much that a, a lot of it made really good sense to me as to why Scientology doesn't actually work. And then came the point where I was actually willing to talk about it with someone. I had a best friend at the time. He's, st- he's still my best friend. Mm-hmm. And we would kind of drop little hints to each other and be like, oh, you know, that thing that happened in Scientology, like, don't you think that was BS? And he'd be like, yeah, kind of. And then we leave it at that. And then eventually over the months and the years that, that went on, eventually we got to the point where we could finally talk about it with each other and say, oh my God, Scientology is garbage. None of this stuff actually works. And did you watch this video? And did you hear about how Hubbard actually died? And did you hear about how David Miscavige has been beating up the, the most senior Sea Org members for the last five years or whatever, or whatever it was at the time? So by that point, we finally were like, okay, that's it. We're done with Scientology. And then they kept trying to get me back on course and they kept trying to get me back to do more auditing. And I just politely said, no, thank you. Thank you, but no. And left it at that because we both knew that, and he has the same issue because he finally spoke out just after I did. He lost his entire family too. His entire family was in Scientology. But again, it's one of those things. It's like he was done with the lies. He was done with hiding. And he, and he finally had a conversation with his dad and was like, dad, I can't live this lie anymore. I don't want to be a Scientologist. You can be a Scientologist if you want to, but I'm done. And told him, you know, the reasons why. And his dad was like, okay, well, then I guess that's it then. Yeah. Incredible. So here you are availing yourself of information that you're not supposed to, which is actually one of the things that I tell people is a sign, uh, a red flag about uh, an organization that you should probably avoid. Even uh, a relationship you should probably avoid. If the person says, 
yeah, I really want to get together with you. By the way, don't contact any of my exes, <laughs> right? Well, yeah. why not? Why did you say right. that, you know? Right. Um, well, Scientology is very notorious for, for telling people, just don't look. You're not, you're not allowed to look. And I don't know if you knew this story or not, but it was in the late 90s when the internet was just starting to become popular and people were going online and, and actually, you, you know, discovering what the internet was. Scientology released a, a, a huge batch of tens of thousands of these little CD-ROM discs. And they gave it out for free to all of the Scientology, like, here, take this home. And basically what they said it was is that it was a CD-ROM for them to download the official Church of Scientology website materials as it, as it first came out. And using the CD-ROM, they could create their own website that says, my name is blah, 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 and I'm a Scientologist. And Here's what I gained from Scientology. What it actually was, was a, uh, a net nanny, is what they called it. And what the CD-ROM actually did was it blocked anti-Scientology websites and a whole list of very particular words. So that if a Scientologist were to install that CD-ROM on their computer, without their knowing about it, it would block anything that had to do with anything against Scientology. One of the words on that list actually happened to be the word Xenu. So anybody that was looking for the confidential levels, right. body thetans, Xenu, uh, any, anything having to do with uh, an ex-Scientologist who had a website at that time that was speaking out. And Scientologists had no idea that they were literally plugging in a, 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 a thing on their computer that was blocking everything. And they didn't find out about that until like 10 or 15 years later, I think. Unbelievable. I mean, maybe not unbelievable. Maybe believable. And so, believable for right? for the Church of Scientology. But just you know, I think about the Freedom of Information and Freedom of Information Act. It doesn't apply here, and and that people then are, I think, at the core, really not able to be treated respectfully. Because I think when you're treated respectfully, you're given all the information about an organization before you get involved, while you're there, uh, and that if they don't have anything to hide, you can talk to people who have left it, you can talk to people who have had bad or good experiences, but you can avail yourself of any information. You're supposed to look at both sides, you know, in anything that you do in life, especially if you're about to join a religion. But in Scientology, the line that they teach people, and a lot of the Scientology celebrities now, you know, whenever they get asked a critical question about Scientology, they say, well, you know what? You're looking at um, you're looking at people who are critical of Scientology. Why don't you go pick up a copy of Dianetics? Why don't you actually go in, into a church of Scientology and look for yourself? Because they only want you to look at that at their one side. Mm. So it's okay. they, and they themselves are, are 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 blinded by the fact that they were brainwashed into into giving people the responses to those particular questions. They drill you. I mean, they make you practice. If you go in front of a news person or if you go and get an interview by someone, if you talk to someone who is against Scientology, they train you on how to on how to answer those types of questions to their advantage, of course. Right. So what would be some of the answers that you were trained to give? They had, a, uh, I mean, uh, have you ever seen a copy of the What is Scientology book? Yes. Um, actually, I have it. I have it here. <laughs> well, that's right. Because I remember seeing it on your book. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. in the What is Scientology book, and okay. I'm sure they have it online. They have a whole list of potential questions, like mm -hmm. people, like what? How do you answer a question about why does Scientology cost so much? And the answer they give is, I think, something like, "Well, because you know the technology is so pure, we have to keep it that way, and it costs a lot of money to produce the materials and the books and the the CD lectures and all this stuff." Anyway, so they have just a whole list of things, and like if someone if someone says something you know, critical, like, well, why are there so many ex-Scientologists? The answer is, is, and this is the answer that they give a lot, is because there's only a handful of disgruntled ex-Scientology members. They call them, uh, what's the word? Bitter apostates, I think is the name that they call wow, them. That's a good one. And uh, the answer is, is that they all got together in a group. There's like 10 or 15 of them. They all got together in a group and made up all these stories so that it looks like their stories are actually valid. But they were, but 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 they were all created in the same room, because mm. that because that makes perfect sense. Because that, <laughs> that, yeah. that makes perfect sense is probably this sort of comma, and then phrase, and then period. You can yeah. put at the end of almost everything you're talking about so far today, mm -hmm. right? And that makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. But 
what I think is also so interesting is being being drilled, being grilled uh, with having the answers. And, you know, we we talk about in this field and, as you know, these thought stopping techniques. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that you can get people to not be emotionally engaged and not really have something register is mm -hmm. to have them have trained responses that you mm -hmm. give them. So they just are thinking uh, line like in a play. What's my line? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. This is the line yeah. I'm supposed to give. Scientology is all about drilling and drilling and drilling and practicing. I mean, when I was training to become an auditor, they have the uh, they they have drills for everything. So anytime you go to get training to become an auditor, for every single Scientology procedure, there's a drill for it. And one of the types of drills that they love to use on most of the stuff, it's called a um, it's called a patter drill, patter drill. And you sit in a chair in front of a blank in front in front of a blank wall, with uh, a list of like let's say you're learning how to do um, I don't know I'm just trying to think of a very simple Scientology procedure. Let's say you're learning how to drill how to ask someone if they have done something wrong, and there's a whole list of different types of questions and a whole list of different procedures, and you're supposed to sit there in front of the wall, and you you run it out loud to yourself over and over and over again for hours and sometimes days, especially like when there's a really long uh, list of uh, questions or commands that you have to learn. So they call them the patter drills. So you go patter, 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 over and over and over again until you take that piece of paper that's sitting on the wall in front of you and take the paper away and you have it completely memorized in your mind verbatim. So when you go in session and you're starting to audit someone, you don't even have to think about it. It just pops and you're like, oh, here's my pattern. And you go down the list and it's all there. So they're very, they're, they're very keen on, on, on turning your thoughts off. Like you said, the turning off the thought process. Because you're not allowed to think in Scientology. Everything has already been thought for you. You just have to do it. Oh my, I have to write that down. You're okay. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah. fascinating. I think what's also very interesting is to, to think about all that you were doing while you were busy, you were also being traumatized. And so you had to really shut off a lot of your emotional reactions, right? Because you can't have your reactive mind anyway. Um, you cannot emotionally react to anything in Scientology. But we know that it still makes an impact and that it goes yes. somewhere, right? And mm -hmm. so you're, you're storing a lot of your experiences without being able to express them, without being able to mm -hmm. get help with them, without being able to kind of release them. Um, right. And also without being able to talk to someone outside of the system who will normalize why you're feeling traumatized or who will normalize being gay. I'm wondering at, one, at what point you started to feel like maybe there isn't something inherently wrong with you because you're gay or is that still in somewhere inside still a work in progress because of your conditioning no I, that that i actually was able to to kind of kind of shed that that negative emotion pretty quickly um after i got kicked out of the sea org that was in like late 1999 and then starting in the early 2000s i think it was 2005 um that i finally started to become more comfortable with myself and with my own sexuality and and um that's when i actually started like going out on dates with guys and actually trying to find a relationship with another man which i kept secret from scientology in the beginning this is another interesting story i completely forgot about this until just now mm -hmm. um so i had had i think i was 24 25 when i had like my first gay kiss i had had girlfriends and things before but i'd never done anything with a man before and so i was having this relationship with this guy and i was having a wonderful time so finally i went back in session like maybe a year after that happened and they started their their interrogations you know what did you do what did you do what what are you thinking of like what did you do that you don't want anybody to find out about with and i i finally said you know what i'm actually not hiding it I did this thing. I kissed this guy, and they went through their whole list of questions, like, you know, did you touch his penis? Like, did you have oral sex? Did you have it? No, no, I didn't. I just kissed him. There was nothing else that happened. And like, they go through their whole pattern, 
<laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of, of the of the really really intrusive sexual sexual questions. So this was in Florida when I had revealed that I had actually done something homosexual at Flag, which is the the their spiritual headquarters that are in Clearwater. So my auditor, a lovely woman, she was like, "Thank you so much for telling me." You know, and she went through the whole thing and we ended the session. Everything was fine. I was like, okay, I feel fine. You know, great. I'm ready for the next session. The next morning I went in for the session. They said, oh, you have um, a scheduled interview with the medical liaison officer or the MLO because, you know, Scientologists love to abbreviate everything. So I said, I'm not sick. Why am I going to the medical liaison officer? And they said, well, you'll, you'll, you'll find out. So okay, I go downstairs and they take my little folder, which is confidential. I'm not, I'm not allowed to look at my own patient folder. So they take the folder downstairs and they hand it to the medical liaison officer. And he looks at it and then he looks at me and he says, you need to get uh, an AIDS test. And I'm like, what? Me? why? And he goes, I don't know why. This is the order from the case supervisor. The case supervisor is the person that is in charge of your auditing. So the case supervisor tells the auditor what to do. So I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. I just kissed a guy and he was like, right. you cannot continue to get auditing from us unless you get an HIV test. Oh, fine. fine. So I go to the free, the free clinic in Tampa and I go get an HIV test and it took like five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it was. And then I bring back the paper and then um, it goes back to the case supervisor because everything, like once you finish their orders, the case supervisor's orders, they have to check it again. It goes back to the case supervisor. They say, you have an interview with the ethics officer. And I'm like, oh shit, okay. Mm -hmm. So here we go. So then I go to the ethics officer. The ethics officer sits me down and he says, you uh, need to leave flag by tomorrow. And I said, what do you mean? I paid for auditing. And he was like, there's a policy that says that anybody who is openly homosexual is not allowed to be on lines at the flag base in Clearwater. And I said, the first thing that any Scientologist is supposed to say when they ask that question, show it, show it to me in writing. If it isn't written, it isn't true. He showed me the policy and it was a flag order policy, which was not written by Hubbard. It was just like a organizational policy. I'm like, Hubbard, and of course, when you get that, a good Scientologist is supposed to answer, Hubbard didn't write it. If Hubbard didn't write it, it means it's not true. We got into a little bit of an argument and the policy, by the way, if you have a serious medical condition or if you have had any psychiatric treatment or taken any psychiatric drugs, or if you're an active homosexual, an open homosexual, you're not allowed to be on flag lines. So that was their policy. I said, you know what, fine. I'll go back to LA and get and get my auditing at the at the at the place where I started the auditing. Anyway, so that uh, so that whole thing happened. <laughs> Unbelievable! Yeah. Unbelievable! And this this just came from you saying that you had kissed a guy and that the auditor said thank you for telling me, and then right. there was a firestorm. 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 Okay. And then. At that point, I think that's when I finally was like, you know what? I really don't care what anybody else thinks. And I just kind of, you know, I just kind of said, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing. And if they have a problem with it, they're going to tell me about it. And they did. They said, we have a problem. Even when I went back to LA to get more auditing back at the, at the big blue buildings, they said, you can continue getting auditing, but you're not going to go up the bridge. They've told me flat out, you cannot do move upwards on the bridge which is the only way you're supposed to go. So I was like, well, I'm going to keep arguing with you and I'm going to keep asking you for the Hubbard policy that says that I can't. And they kept showing me these policies that were kind of convoluted in a roundabout way. Like I had to do some serious mental gymnastics to see the point that they were trying to make. My auditor actually, my auditor, Diane, uh, she was one of my favorite auditors at the Blue Building. She finally told me to go read the uh, 10 volume set of books that Hubbard wrote called Mission Earth. It's a science fiction book comprised of 10 giant volumes. And she was like, go read the, the Mission Earth series. And I'm like, 
you want me to read science fiction that Hubbard wrote? Because in there, it's going to tell me why I can't go up the bridge because I'm gay. And I read the first two books. And the way that Hubbard depicts homosexuals in the Mission Earth books are the ultra flamboyant, pedophile acting, child molesting, just he he portrays gay people in, in that set of science fiction books in a very negative way. Mm. That was the thing that kind of, the that was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. I was like, okay, that's it. I can't, I can't do it anymore. I can't. Right. Because giving right. giving me science giving me the the answer to a technical problem with science fiction is 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 ridiculous. So I was like, nope, that's it, that's it, I'm done. Right. I I know that would be like in therapy, me saying, well, I should use the Vulcan mind meld. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not, yeah. right? it doesn't apply yeah. in real life, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. So I think the fact that also that. his depiction of homosexuals is so uh, over the top, but also predatory. Uh, Predatory and pedophile. Like, yes. So awful. So awful. It's terrible. It's terrible. But that, but that just shows you what, what Hubbard thought of homosexuals, irregardless of, of, of what he wrote in Dianetics, which he said that we were, he said that homosexuals are, are aberrated and the most evil beings on the planet and we should be institutionalized is what he wrote in, in one of the, in the first book he wrote, Dianetics. Okay. Oh mm. my goodness. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so <laughs> yeah. along, you know, speechless. Okay. Speechless. Yeah. Um, uh, along the way, your family being so involved and so high level, were they, you know, apprised of what was happening to you or did they know, did they interact with you um, yes. along the way? Yeah. Yes. When I got kicked out of the Sea Org, um, unbeknownst to me at the time, my parents got pulled in by the most senior ethics people in the church, like the ones that oversee all of the ethics stuff. So they got pulled into those offices and they were like, okay, we need to give you a briefing on what's happening with Joey. And they they took my confessional files, my auditing files, where I revealed to them like my deepest, darkest secrets, and they handed it to them. And they said, this is what Joey said that he did. These are all the bad things that Joey said that he did. And the reason why that they did that was to try to safe point my parents um, because they were big fish. And if they, for some reason, decided to side with me and decided to let my, my bad ethics behavior continue, then they would lose a really big meal ticket because my parents at that time were donating millions of dollars to the to the church. And they were high-level Scientologists, close friends with David Miscavige, got invited. We all got invited to all of the 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 big science Scientology galas and the the black tie dinners and the special events and things like that. So to keep them happy, they were like, this is what Joey did. These are all of his crimes. This is what he confessed to here's what the plan is and here's what we're going to do to try to fix him. So they, I would imagine, I think that's the only time that I knew that they got pulled in for something without my knowing about it. I'm sure it's happened a bunch more times that I did not know about because they would never speak to me about it, especially my mother. My mother is the one that actually ratted me out and got me kicked out of the Sea Org and what got me into major trouble. So when I was in the Sea Organization, uh, the boy that I had a crush on, he was a Sierra member, but he was in Florida. I was in Los Angeles and he was in Clearwater, Florida. And I was one of the lucky Sierra members uh, because my parents were rich and um, I had a car, I had a driver's license. Most Sierra members that grow, especially that grow up in the Sea Org, they don't have a car, they don't have a driver's license, they don't have a bank account or any of that stuff. So, and also when you're in the Sea Org, you're not allowed to have cell phones. So I had my parents gave me a, um, a calling card to use on pay phones. This is in the late 90s when they still had pay phones. Yes. yes. And um, so I would call this other boy in Florida and we would talk and, you know, we'd have our little emotional relationship and be like, I miss you. I can't wait to see you, blah, blah, blah. Very juvenile. But, you know, for me, it was kind of exciting because I had never... Had a had a real emotional relationship with anybody yeah. before, and right. we were like really strongly connected. Mm-hmm. So every couple of days, we would talk, and I would talk on the phone for like thirty or forty minutes to him. And my mom 
took the bill from the phone company, from the calling card, and sent the bill to the ethics officer and said, oh, Joey's calling this number in Florida. You should check it out. There's something fishy going on here. So then the ethics officer, of course, whose, whose number is this? I said, it's the boy's name, blah, blah. And then they put me on the e-meter and they started doing the interrogations. And they finally were like, I told them, I'm like, okay, we're having an emotional relationship. And that was when all hell broke loose. And that's when they put me in the room with no windows and blocked the door from me getting out and that whole thing. But my mother, my mother ratted me out. She snitched. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, she, handed them, she handed them the evidence too. Okay. So just to help people understand. Yeah. It, within this system of people ratting each other out and that I think they feel or they've been convinced that it's for the other person's benefit. Was that what it was about for your mom or was it to kind of contain the life that you were starting to live that she didn't want you to be living? I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know if you can kind of get into her head, but what do you think? It was about the benefit of the other person. But in Scientology, which is nothing but a snitching culture, that's all you do with each other is you, everybody's snitching on everybody else. And the fact that Hubbard said that it's a crime, it's a high crime, if you don't snitch out somebody else for something that you know that's going on that might be wrong or, or incorrect. So they write reports on each other. And these reports, they're called knowledge a knowledge report. Mm-hmm. So hundreds of knowledge reports are written on Scientologists every single day, and they're constantly writing knowledge, constantly writing knowledge reports. So part of the reason why is because they think that they're actually helping. They think that if if I were to write a knowledge report on you, Rachel, and say, you know, oh, I saw Rachel doing such and such, and I think that there might be something fishy with that. If I didn't write the knowledge report, it would be on my conscience and it would be on my plate if I didn't report it. Because if eventually something was actually found out and I knew about it or I, sus- or, or I suspected it, I would be as equally as guilty as you. Okay, right. So mm-hmm. talk about a motivator. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think also it's based on this falsehood because there's a different def- definition in Scientology and other groups about what a crime is. Yes. Right. So if it's based on something that they define as a crime, but isn't necessarily by the general population, um, Mm -hmm. you're going to be punished for things that don't make sense to other people. Right. And it happens a lot in Scientology because there's so many different rules that you have, whether you're a a public Scientologist, a paying Scientologist, or if you're in the C organization and you work for them full time, it's, there could be two or three different sets of rules. So C org members, have the worst set of rules because they're not allowed to have cell phones. They're not allowed to take time off without permission. They're not allowed to do this. They're not allowed to do that. The marriage rules in the Sea Org are very strict. You're not allowed to even hold hands with another Sea Org member unless you get married. So there's a lot of um, shotgun weddings. I mean, when I was in the Sea Org, especially with the young kids that were at the ranch for, for the Sea Org members, to avoid lots of um, unauthorized sex happening, they forced a lot of those young kids below the age of 18 to get married. So like if there were two serial members, a boy and a girl who were like 16 or 15 or whatever they were, and they were a girlfriend, and if there was any hint of sexual activity between them, which you can only hold hands when you're in the Sea Org, the executives and the ethics officers would come in and say, we're driving you to Vegas and you guys are going to get married. That'll just solve the problem, which of course it didn't because then a couple of years after that, we ended up with a bunch of people getting pregnant and then having to leave the Sea Org. This was in the early 2000s, I think that happened. So wow. it's, it, it's, a, it's a pretty vicious cycle. But as far as the snitching culture and as far as writing the reports on, ev- on everybody at that time, I thought I was you know helping the other person, but more importantly, protecting myself. Ah, right. Okay. Right. That makes a lot of sense, again, within the culture. Correct. Yeah. Okay. In the real world, it doesn't mean anything at all. So, yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of things that don't translate um, oh, at no. all. It's, right. it's, its own, it's its own world. It's its own little bubble. And we had our own language that nobody else can understand, which is, which is, you know, part of the, 
part of the secrecy of Scientology. Like we could, like I could have a conversation with one of my ex Scientology friends, and you wouldn't be able to understand a word of it. Yeah, I remember when one of my first uh, clients, who was a former Scientologist, had so many acronyms. Uh, abbreviate everything. <laughs> right. Everything. So she was talking about OTs and KRs and PTSSP, and uh, she said. Yeah. So what do you think? And I said, I can't help, but I'm thinking M-O-U-S-E. <laughs> like I just, right? <laughs> what, how many more, like just letters are you going to throw at me? And what does it mean? Like, you know, how do, let's, let's define it. I didn't mean to make, I wasn't making fun, but it just seemed like it's just like alphabet soup, you know? You literally have to have to have a dictionary in, in, when you're, when you're talking with the Scientologist. But the other thing too, Hubbard took regular English words and changed the definition to his liking and changed it to be something completely, most of the time, not having anything to do with what the actual English definition of the, of the word is. And I'll be talking to my, my, my partner, Michael, even, even to this day, we've been together for almost eight years and we will be having a conversation and I'll say a word and he'll pause me and be like, I'm sorry, what, what did you just say? And then he'll go, that's not what that word means. And I'm like, well, that's what it means in Scientology. <laughs> So right. nothing else right. about that. But I mean, when I was leaving Scientology, that's another thing that I had to do is you have to unlearn all of these, all of these weird definitions and stop, stop using the, the acronyms and, and, and stop abbreviating it. And it's, it's, yeah, that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing that I had to mentally like unfix for myself from my years in Scientology. And that's very hard. It really is like moving to another uh, country where you have it, to learn. It takes, it takes a long time. It right. takes a very long time. So I know we're about done with our time, unfortunately. I hope I get to talk to you again because I know there's so much more to the story. But I want to yes. be able to, yes. to finish up by hearing from you about what, what has helped you heal. What's been, um, what's been sort of a technique that you've used or thoughts that really help you get over your experiences? Mm -hmm. The biggest thing for me, I think the biggest thing that helped me was talking to other Scientologists or talking to other ex-Scientologists, I should, I should say. Being able to speak to someone, being able to speak to multiple people who have similar or very close experiences as you do was a huge, huge help for me. Um, also seeing you, by the way, and talking with you and, uh, even in the group therapy that you do sometimes that was hugely helpful because I think if you, if you talk to people who have had very similar experiences to yours and you can kind of get, um, different ideas, it kind of takes your own thoughts and takes them out of your head. So just to talk to someone and just to just just to be able to verbal verbalize it is a huge huge difference for me. Yeah, and looking looking at all the YouTube videos, reading all of the books. There's so many good books that are written by ex Scientologists that are out there. And now we have the Leah Remini show. There's three there's three seasons of TV that you can watch. That it was also a huge help. I was already out by that time, but for someone who's also kind of under the radar or in the in the closet of Scientology. Mm -hmm. TV shows, YouTube videos, there's so many books and talking to people. That's that that's the most that could help. Mm. I'm so happy that you're out of the closet that's that was in another closet. So you're out of two closets. Yes. And <laughs> yeah. that you can kind of uh see the sunlight and breathe fresh air and have your life and and do what you enjoy and not have what is kind of naturally you demonized. Mm -hmm. Um and how freeing and how normalizing. Um, but I'm so happy to be able to, to talk to you and also yes. hear how you're able to talk about this. While it still, I'm sure, makes an impact on you, there's clearly this kind of distance from it that kind of helps yes. you see it, right? Ha have that perspective, yes. even kind of chuckle about it, which, which is very healing, which I know takes some time and takes oh, yeah. some work. It's part. It's 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 part of the healing process, and it took me it took me a while to get to this point. But now that I can laugh about it, and this just just this conversation that the two of us are having, and uh, knowing that other people might listen to this, or might listen to uh, another person that was speaking out against Scientology, because in the beginning, that's the thing that 
that sparked or that triggered my waking up process, even though it was very, very little in the beginning and it slowly built up kind of like a slow burn. But it's the videos or the or the or, or the podcasts that are like this that eventually will help other people leave Scientology and other mind controlling cults. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That's a great place to end. Thank you so much for your time today, Joey. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. One more thing before you go. When you're told that the way you are is not acceptable or allowed, what does that do to you? Oftentimes it makes you feel shame and it can make you feel less than and sometimes avoidant because you're sure that you're going to be met with judgment or rejection through really no fault of your own. And for some reason, there are some things people reveal about themselves that prompt other people, usually the listener, to give their opinion about it, even though their opinion wasn't asked for. So I know it happens with people who have been involved in cults. When they do reveal that they've been involved in a cult, sometimes people will respond by seeming surprised or compassionate about their experience if they understand what that experience is like. But other people have told me quite often that people they tell it to respond by saying, oh, I would never fall for that, or I'd never let that happen to me. And of course, you wonder in that moment why that person needs to pass judgment and why that person really needs to feel superior somehow in that moment. And what's also true is that it's not necessarily true. People are vulnerable at different times in their lives. And the people who say that they would never be so gullible or whatever else, they may have already been so, but in a different context. And it makes you actually more vulnerable to getting involved in something or kind of caught up in something when you think that you are not vulnerable to it, when you then lower your defenses all the time, you're then potentially more susceptible. And so then when people say that they are gay or bi, trans, anything, some people also feel the need to give their opinion. I'm thinking about Joey's story here, of course. And Others will use that as a reason to reject them, even parents sometimes, who are the ones who often created the person that you are and the wiring that you have that then they are rejecting. Imagine if I let people know I had hazel eyes, which I have, and the responses I got to that information were things like, I don't know how I feel about that. That's not natural. You shouldn't be left alone with children. If I spend too much time with you, you could turn my eyes hazel. Or that's going against God's plan, or it's best to keep it a secret. Or that's weird. Or or having parents say, well, I have brown eyes and your father has blue eyes and we're just not going to have a child with hazel eyes living under our roof. I might also be told it's a phase or my favorite when people share things and reveal things about themselves, especially their gender identity or their sexual preference, being asked the following question, are you sure? And then there's some people, pastors, counselors, those who are dangerously intolerant and are themselves wired the same way as you at times, but have so much self-hatred that they try to prove to themselves and to others that they are quote-unquote normal, they take it to the next level and feel it is their job, their duty, their God-given right to hurt, publicly shame, and for some, in some places, even kill those who identify those ways. And then there are the conversion therapies and treatment centers that are reprehensible, frightening, and cruel, a true nightmare. 
I know that within certain families and communities, organizations, there can be a vilification and a demonization of traits people find perfectly acceptable, a complete non-issue in other places. And that's sometimes why people leave those families or those groups, because they find out that in places outside of the places they were raised, they could get the experience of actually feeling, quote-unquote, normal for the first time. But being able to shift how you feel about yourself when you have been demonized so often, that takes some doing. A 20-year-old man came to see me after leaving a very restrictive Bible-based group that, well, it still sees most people who are having naturally occurring feelings as sinful pathological. And this led to an awkward conversation in my office with this man after nine sessions that seemed to go quite smoothly up until that point. He had told himself that by the 10th session, he would get the nerve, the bravery to tell me his secret. He thought it would ruin everything that I would no longer like him, respect him, or think he was all right. And I wouldn't want to help him anymore because he was a sinner. He spent a lot of that 10th session introducing the idea that he wanted to tell me something but was afraid. And I spent a lot of the time trying to reassure him he didn't have to worry, but he didn't fully believe me. Then he said, okay, if I don't tell you now, I'll never tell you. And I don't know if I'll tell anyone. He wiped his brow with a tissue. And then he said, I was jealous of my brother when we were growing up, and I still am. And then he looked at me. And I said, and? And he said, and what? And I said, so did that make you do something you regretted? And he asked, do something? See, I told you it was awkward. And it was also getting confusing for both of us. And we looked at each other in silence for another moment. And I said, oh, got it. That was the secret. You felt and you still feel jealousy towards your brother. Yes, he said, and I'm ashamed of it. I know it's evil. He was elevated to be an assistant to the minister, and my parents told me I should try to be more like him. And that made me angry and jealous. And there's the other part of my secret. And here's more awkwardness. So I asked, what's the other part? And he said, I just told you, don't make me say it again. I thought about it. I thought about what he said. And I said, oh, got it. You feel jealousy towards your brother and anger towards your parents for comparing you to your brother in that way. And without being able to say anything in response, he just tearfully nodded his head yes. He went through nine sessions with me, too afraid to share that too afraid to take the risk, to just tell me that these were the things he was feeling. He stood up, collected his jacket, phone, and keys, and said, well, I guess that's it. Thank you for your help. He was sure I was going to reject him. I asked him if he could sit back down for a minute. And then I asked him what he was taught about those emotions and what his former minister and his parents told him about jealousy and anger. And when he answered my question, I fully understood why he waited so long to tell me. They were not only sinful and evil, the work of the devil, but also highly punishable. And this is not uncommon. Many people grow up being told that natural feelings and natural reactions are bad for many reasons, and... My client hadn't acted on them, he just felt them and was terrified to tell me that. Going back to Joey's conversation, 
Joey talked about crimes and how so many things were called crimes in Scientology. Usually natural feelings and also anyone who was critical of the group, and this is specifically for Scientology, according to L. Ron Hubbard, in his list of procedures for going after people being seen as enemies of the church, and this is from Attacks on Scientology, a Hubbard Communications Office Policy Letter written in 1966. You can check it out online if you want to check it out yourself. And this is a quote. There has never yet been an attacker who was not reeking with crime. All we had to do was look for it, and murder would come out. I suppose the idea there is that a person being critical of Scientology could, in some ways, be seen as having committed murder before he became an attacker of Scientology. It's kind of a big leap in logic. But this isn't uncommon, that negative reactions to something prove that you're evil. Scientology didn't invent this idea. Fundamentalist religions have people feeling that some of their natural emotions are sinful and therefore they are sinners and evil and can't be trusted, can't trust themselves. Controlling partners also do the same. They mistreat you, then they berate you for not being fine with it and forgetting about it and being upset or angry about it. They make you feel like you're the one with the problem by having a very normal reaction to being mistreated, as though you are the one attacking them, committing a crime. And really, this ends up just being a crime against their ego. So the crime in my book should never be just about who you are and how you feel inside. The crime, if there is one, should just be based upon how you treat others and ultimately how you make them feel about themselves. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.